the Lord together. Have a seat. Good morning. We welcome you this morning. Glad you're here uh, to worship together uh, the name of the Lord. Please take a moment and fill out a connection card attached to your bulletin there. Keep in mind, if you're new to us, or maybe you're not, maybe you've been hanging around for years and uh, haven't come any closer, next Sunday is starting point at 12.15, a lunch right after this service in the hub. You might as well stay for lunch and uh, get to know us better. We want to get to know you better as well. We'd love to have you next week, so please uh, keep that in mind. I bring you greetings from Heiligenkreuz, Austria, where I've been the last couple of weeks teaching. I taught Romanians this year. There were students from nine different uh, countries there uh, all together working on their uh, education in church planting and leadership, and it's a great joy to be there. While I was there, uh, Riley Weaver, our global impact minister, was in Ukraine celebrating 20 years with that school there uh, near Kherson, Ukraine, as they reach into other uh, formerly communistic areas and Central Asia as well to help them do the same kind of work. We're grateful for partners like this that we can have in the world and uh, know that part of your money you give this week to the Lord's work is reaching around the world. And this really helps us be obedient to the psalmist who wrote, declare God's glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among the peoples of the earth. And so that's what we do. That's what we're even doing here today. We are reminding each other of the greatness of God, his glory, and his wonderful works. I hope that you can even get testimony to the wonderful works he has done in your life as well. Let's pray as we continue today. Our Father in heaven, it is good to be together and we're grateful for the opportunity to be together just for this hour to praise, to be reminded of what's most important. And I pray our time together is well spent as we lift up the name of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles to Psalm 95. It's the center of your Bible. Most of you know where Psalms are. It's the ancient hymn book of the Jews, and there's much to learn. I remember uh, growing up, I, it was almost like I was an only child because my brother was eight years older than me. My mom had a couple of miscarriages before I was born. And so by the time, you know, I'm in elementary school or getting into elementary school, my brother is a teenager. He's driving, you know, and irked that he used to drive his little brother places and all that sort of thing. And so I was sort of like an only child. So when I went away to college in Cincinnati, man, I loved dorm life. Some people think I'm nuts, but I liked it. Uh, because I'd never known brothers and sisters. I'd never known what it was like to uh, have even one brother to grow up with. So to be in a dorm uh, with other guys, uh, it, it, it was just a great fellowship. And some of those friendships, you know, I still have today that I formed then. I was naive, of course. I thought everybody who went to a Christian university, you know, they, they were there for the right reasons. We've been called to ministry. Ha! You know, I learned real fast. You know, some, some guys were there because their parents sent them there to reform them and to make them, shape them up. And other guys were there because they thought, uh, they thought a Christian college would be sort of like a glorified church camp. And it would be a breeze, which it was not. And so my eyes were open. But, but of, of all the experience, I loved those years together because there, there, we were a community of faith. For those of us who knew we were called to ministry and that we were very imperfect people. Uh, we weren't all that Christ-like all the time. But we knew we were called by God to do something larger than ourselves. And, you know, that, that's how I see the church. You know, as I, as I loved those college years, I love the church. I love this church. I love you. I love that we're a family of faith. I love, I trust 
that we can increasingly be honest with each other, that we admit, we freely admit that we're damaged goods, that we're scarred up, that we've made foolish decisions in our lives, and some of those consequences we're still dealing with in our lives. I mean, the stories go on and on, and I want us to be a fellowship like that, not of perfect people, but of people who realize how needy we are, how messed up we are, how, how much we must be this community of faith, like a family is. When you're in a family, you know, you're together no matter what, right? And that's how a family of faith ought to be. So for five Sundays, we're calling this series Together because I want us to understand what it means to be a family of faith, what's expected of us, what's most important in a family of faith, and so forth. So that's why we're turning to Psalm 95, which for centuries has been a psalm that informs believers about worship. Today we're dealing with together and worship. What is it that we do here? Now, now, of course, there's private worship, but there is corporate worship when we come together. God's people have been doing uh, since they could gather together. What, what, what is worship? Why are we here? What, how, why is this important? So, in the Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah. As you did that day at Massah in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Before we get into the psalm, let's just answer a couple basic questions. The one is, you know, what is worship? It seems like we ought to know that, but our audience is always changing. There's always newer people coming, so let's review this again. Again, every single person is a worshiper. You cannot live in life and not be worshiped. If somebody tells you, well, I just don't worship anything or anybody, yes, they do. Now, they may worship their own idea that there is no God. Maybe that's the centerpiece of their lives and wanting everybody else to believe what they believe as well. Um, it, it, people worship a relationship, a person, an ideal, a dream, a career, money, sports, a claim. It can be anything. Worship happens by everybody. It's, it, worship is when you say, if I have that, then my life is worth something. If I can, if I can get married... If I could have a different marriage, if I could just have a kid, if I could have another kid, if I could have that job or live in that neighborhood or go to that school or get that degree, that have that much money, be able to retire this way, whatever it is, if I have that, then my life will really be valuable and worth something. That's what it is to worship. This word worship comes from an old English phrase that means worth shape. Worth shape. So to worship means you are putting something, we put something in a place that makes a difference or that shapes me in my life. Now, in spite of that truth, there are plenty of people that scoff at the idea that there is one God worthy of worship. Julia Sweeney was a character or was an actress on Saturday Night Live years ago. She said this, 
I'm living my life as a person who accepts the natural world. The whole idea that there's a God who cares whether people believe in him or not, like why would, why would God care if people believed in, believed in him or not? That was one of the many things that I found so shocking reading the Bible. First of all, how insecure God is. I mean, God is so insecure, he needs everyone to say, you're the number one, you're the number one over all other gods, you're the top God, and like, it's the most insecure character. I hope Julia Sweeney repents before she stands before the Lord. Really, I mean that with all my heart. Because it's a dreadful thing, the Bible says, to fall into the hands of the living God. And to do so without Jesus is, a, is indeed a terrible thing. And sadly, there are many people that think like she thinks, who carry this with them. Uh, God is a jealous God. I remember years ago, Oprah was saying, I just don't get that. I think that's ridiculous. Who wants to follow a, a jealous God? Jealousy only means that he is crazy about us. To be a jealous God means that he wants us intently, intensely. God wants us. Why? Because he made us. So worship is that object, thing, person, whatever, that gives your life meaning and, and shape. Well, then why do we worship? Well, I've, also, I've already answered the question, really, in what I just said. We worship God because he alone is capable of shaping us. In other words, he's the only one capable because he designed us and he created us. We all need something that bears the weight of a life of meaning and purpose. Now, in our church, because we have a full spectrum of age groups, I mean, we've got a lot of older people. We have 800 people, age 65 and over. That represents a lot of new hips and knees. <laughs> and maybe you've gotten one too. There comes a life, a time, a personal life, I must do something because this hip or these knees can no longer bear the weight of my body without pain. And so they get, get a new joint. To bear. We come to a point in our lives when we understand what I'm doing with my life cannot bear the weight of a sense of meaning and purpose. And so we go to God for a new life that comes in Jesus, the only one capable of bearing up the sense of meaning and purpose and wholeness that I must have. How many of you watch uh, Antiques Roadshow, have watched it? You know, it cracks me up. More of you watch it than that old crowd over there. It's an amazing thing. I told them that. They couldn't believe it. I said, they're old souls over there for sure. I haven't watched it in a long time. Of course, Antiques Roadshow is about, uh, they were in Indianapolis. Anybody go to the Indianapolis when they were here and had something? To take? Nobody did that? Okay. You, don't, you just have junk, don't you? Well, <laughs> Antiques Roadshow, of course, you take things into experts and they give a value for something you have. And we watch that show not for the mundane stuff. We watch for the thing that shocks people. What? It's worth that much? And, and what, let's pretend that you, you're in the attic and you remember that you got stuff from your grandfather and there was all this, this, this painting stuff. And so you get out this painting, oh, I think I'll take that Dantique's Roadshow. You take it to an evaluator and it's a Picasso, original. Like, what? Suddenly your net worth went up. And what do you do? You, everything changes. I mean... You don't, even, you don't even know if you like Picasso, but now you do. 
And you read everything about Picasso. You study his life, where he lived, what, what was the context of him doing this painting, what's the meaning behind the painting. You figure out how you're going to insure it, how you're going to protect it. Your life is changed by the worth of this one thing. And to so many people, God is like a relic in the attic. It's not that they don't believe he exists, but they never really examine him, never engaged him. They've never let him engage them to discover all that he is, all that he means, the depth of his personhood, and what it means to put your whole soul trust in him. And you know what happens when you have that Picasso? Do you think anybody finds out about it? I'm sure. You can't wait to tell people. That's how God shapes our lives. You know, when I was in Austria these last couple of weeks, what this is is a, is, a, is a graduate school that we support in, in outside Vienna. And it's the only graduate school, in fact, outside or in, in Europe that is accredited by the North, Northwest uh, Accrediting Association, which is a major accrediting association here in the United States. And, and so these, these, these students come right now from 42 different uh, countries in uh, Eastern Europe, formerly communistic, into Central Asia. There was even a student from Nairobi uh, this, this, this past couple of weeks. And uh, I met uh, two brothers, Salem and Biek, and they're from Uzbekistan, where it's illegal to own a Bible, have one in your home. Authorities, if they suspect, will come to your home and find out if you have one. They, they, they suspect you. Uh, they look at you suspiciously. If you have a gathering on Sunday, like a house church, they will watch your house. I had a Uzbek student a few years ago, and, and she leads a study in her home, and they share one Bible, and somebody stays at the window to watch. If authorities are nearby, they will start meeting before dawn so as not to arouse suspicion, stay till it's dark at night. Uh, so not to call attention to themselves. Uh, Solomon uh, Biek became believers because their aunt was in Red Square in Moscow in 1991 after a communism fell and there was a street preacher preaching the gospel. And that's how she came to Jesus Christ. And, and Solomon and the Biek and their eight siblings and parents are all believers. And their home has a few more people in it. But they're very careful about their worship. They are often being questioned about why they're gathering. And, and so they'll move from house to house. I learned of one Uzbek group of people. You know how they worship? Every Sunday morning, they ride the city bus. And they'll whisper together what they have learned about Jesus or how he's blessing their lives. And sometime in their ride... One of them will take out a piece of bread and pass it around, and they'll remember Jesus. You see why I like to go to Eastern Europe? <laughs> I go there and hear these stories of people. Why do they do this? They do this because they know there's only one who is worthy of shaping their lives. And that's why we're here, to be shaped by him. Now, the psalmist then is telling us how we worship, how we worship. First of all, uh, we worship holistically. Notice verses 1 and 2 says that we're called to engage our emotions. We sing, he uses the word sing, joy, shout, thanksgiving, extol, music. You know, you may, you may wish we didn't have music. Maybe that's not your thing. 
Well, it is the thing of God's people throughout the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament as well. We are called to engage our wills. That's verse 6. It's the language of submission. He says, come, kneel, bow down. And then we are called to engage our minds. Uh, because worship involves thinking and understanding. Uh, verse 7 closes with, with the word hear. In other words, when he says that, it's talking about take it in, uh, accept this truth. It's, it's a part of the worship experience. Now, all these three aspects, holistically, we are engaged in worship. If you come to a worship service and it's all about a, hoping you'll get inspired a little bit, that you'll feel better, well, you will, but if that's all that happens, that's not sufficient worship. If you come to worship and you agree with what's being preached or a scripture on the screen or a prayer that's prayed, but there's nothing that rises up in you that causes you joy or thanksgiving or evokes any emotional response, I don't think it's real true worship. If you come to worship and you, it's good for you, it's a great experience, you like what you heard, but you walk out of this building unchanged, unaffected, without anything digestible to bring change, it's not true worship. All three of these have to be woven together, mind, will, and emotion. If they're not, it's, it's just insufficient. You see, how, you see how responsibly we must worship if we're going to be the worshiper God wants us to be. It's hard work. It takes full engagement. Uh, 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 and oh, that we would care to this degree as the psalmist is writing here. Second of all, we worship expectantly. Um, the, the psalmist, when you just read this psalm in a casual reading, it is, he, this is what he's looking forward to. Come, let us bow down. Uh, uh, let, let, let's let's uh, remember. Let's, let's focus on what's happening here. You know, when, when Jesus was talking about worship to the woman at the well in Sychar in Samaria in his ministry, you remember these familiar words, most of you. He said to her, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So Jesus says, I have two expectations. This is what I'm looking for among worshipers. First of all, truth. Truth. And so when we come together, there, there, there is something truthful being spoken, sung, prayed. We expect that. The, the psalmist here is not telling us what he thinks about God or what he'd like to think about God. What he is saying is what he has learned from the patriarchs and particularly the prophets of God. What is he saying here? He's saying, our God is the great God. He's above all gods. In his hands are the depth of the sea. Under his care, we're under his care. In other words, he's a shepherd God. He gives himself to us. What my point is, Nothing the psalmist is writing is new to anybody. 
I've actually run into people who miss church for a few months, or maybe they, uh, maybe I'm inviting them to church, and they have a response. They have the audacity to say something like this. Well, you know, I've really heard all that before. Well, of course you've heard all that before. We've been together 30 minutes, and unless you're new, you have new to Christ or the gospel, you have not heard anything new today. And I promise you next week, you're not going to hear anything new either. Because when we come together, we keep reminding ourselves of what is true so that when the evil one is trying to undermine us and destroy us and swallow us, we have this foundation. This is what we know is true. That's why we have to be together, friends. That's why you dare not treat today lightly. That's why it's important that you come restful in the morning. That's why it's important that you get your kids to bed in time, that they're alert. It's important that you're here on time, hint, hint, that you start together, that you're with us from the beginning to the end, that because this is such a valuable time together and we dare not treat it cheaply. We are reminding each other of the truth of God. I need to go, go through this. Jesus says, so truth has to be involved. He also says spirit, worship in spirit. There's always a debate about this verse of scripture. The spirit of spirit. He says, worshipers, I'm looking for worshipers that worship in spirit, little s. Or is he saying, I'm looking for worshipers who worship in the spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit. It's the same Greek word. So translating teams are up against figuring out what is Jesus trying to say here. And the more I think about it, I wonder if he's more saying not one or the other, but both and. Now, earlier in John chapter 3, the chapter before he talks to the Samaritan woman, you remember Jesus talks to a man named Nicodemus. And he says to Nicodemus this, that which is born of the spirit is flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, I think what he's saying there is that both of them work in cooperation, the human spirit with the Holy Spirit. John Piper said this, true worship comes only from spirits, that's human spirits, made alive and sensitive by the quickening of the spirit of God, capital S. And I think that is a true statement. Let me picture it this way, because in John 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, you'll remember some of you that Jesus said, you know, the Holy Spirit is like wind. You don't see it. You don't know where, it's coming, where he's coming from, but he's there, and you, you have the, the results of the Spirit. As worshipers, we're sort of like sailors. Now, I don't know a cotton-picking thing about sailing, but I have enough sense to know if you're going to sail a boat, you got to have a sail. And so you put the sail up and you have to set the sail so that when the wind shows up, it carries that boat along. And I think that's what worship is all about. When we show up, we show up alert, we show up expectantly, we show up with our spirits engaged, and we set our sails at wor as worshipers good worshipers so that the Holy Spirit can work in us and carry us along how he wants to carry us. That is shaping us and transforming us to look like Jesus. That's what it is to worship in truth and in spirit. Let's learn to show up that way, expectantly, disciplined way, getting up in time to not be rushed, to be here knowing we're going to meet. 
remember later, Paul writes to the Corinthian believers. He said, an unbeliever should come into your worship and say, surely God is in this place. Now, would he know that from your engagement in the worship experience together when we come, mind, will, emotion, all woven together? I trust so. If not, we have work to do. We all do. Remember, there's no perfect form of worship. Mark, my brother over here, has taught me that over and over. There's no perfect form. This is not a perfect worship service. There cannot be. The sanctuary service is not a perfect worship. You're here because maybe this taste fits you more than that taste. There, there, that taste. But, you know, there's no perfect form of worship. And, 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 and you know, what, what we do, friends, we dumb down worship. We come in. If you pick up a bulletin, you may open it up and say, oh, I like that one. No, I don't like that one. I never heard of that one before. That's a dumb name for a sermon. Oh, yeah, I know that Bible story. Start evaluating when you sit down. Or you go, go home or you go out to eat afterwards and you start evaluating what you liked and didn't like. Friends, that is a horrible way to be a worshiper. In fact, I would say we haven't worshiped with that kind of mindset and spirit. We come together expecting to enjoy the presence of God among his people. We'll all have tastes. We'll all have we are quick to evaluate. We just have to guard ourselves about that. Healthy evaluation is good, but it's more important to evaluate our, our hearts as worshipers, okay? Let's learn that well. And finally, we worship restfully. We worship restfully. And this last part's rather confusing. If you were following along very closely, the first part of the psalm is like, yeah, yeah, worship, bow down, praise, loud shouts, all that, joy. And then God says, now remember the desert, and it's such a bummer at the end of a psalm. Why do we have to talk about the desert? For those of you who know your Bible history, God's people were in slavery for 400 years in Egypt, harsh slavery. They got out. For 40 years, they wandered in the, de in the desert because God wouldn't allow them in the promised land that he had outlined for them. Why? Because they were complainers and whiners. They lacked courage. They lacked faith. And God says, okay, I'm patient. I'll wait till you all die. I'll wait till your kids grow up, and I'll let them go in the promised land. And that's exactly what God did. He let that generation die, and another generation grew up that were full of faith and courage. And God let them go in the promised land. And the only way to understand this when he's warning us in the psalm is look at how the Hebrew writer writes about this in Hebrews chapter 4 later on in the New Testament. Let me find it. Chapter 4, verse 3. Follow along on the screen here. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they'll never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he's spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day God rested from all his works. And again in the passage above he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter the rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go, because of, go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For, some, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. Now, what in the world is this text all about? The, the point is, he's saying, look, when Joshua took them into the promised land, 
that was only a shadow of a greater rest, a deeper rest yet to be enjoyed by the people of God. And my friends, that is the rest we get when we put our whole confidence, all of our lives, we stake our lives on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's the good news. And friends, you, we will never rest until we rest fully in him. But now what's this got to do with worship? It has everything to do with worship because you know what we do? We have a checklist. And so God, okay, I'm going to go to church today because I need your blessing. I need something from you. Or God, I'm going to go to church because I want to be a good Christian. God, I'm going to go to church because this is how I raise. I feel too guilty if I didn't go to church. That makes worship merely a work that we do to earn a place with God. And friends, that's not how we come together. We come together because of the privilege of being here. We come because only God alone is worth something. He's worth the shaping of our lives. This is not a work we do to gain acceptance by God. That is what we do in response to a God who has so loved us. Imagine if every one of us came back next week with that spirit. Holistically, expectantly, resting in the splendor of coming together for the glory of the name of God. I tell you, we would walk out of here ready to change the world. Because true worship changes us. So that we can be effective change agents, change agents in our campuses, our schools, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, everywhere we go. Together, we come together and worship. There is no God like him. Let's value the family of faith. Let's value being together every week. Let's be committed and loyal to this gathering so God can really bring the change about us individually and collectively as this family in this family of faith as he wants us to become he is worthy now let's stand and worship him